Timeless truths that we can apply to our lives today as well. They're all throughout Scripture that when applied to our lives really help us to be focused on our God, really help us to be glorifying our God, whether that's in a time of transition like Israel was in, um, or just in our everyday life, in our families, in our individual lives, that is what we have been looking at. And so here in 1 Kings chapter 2, we're going to see something tonight that is very important for each one of us. We've talked about several things through this study, and uh, we will we'll go through them here in a second just for sake of review. But there is a reason why all of the truths that we have looked at um, are very important. There are multiple reasons why they are very important. And we're going to look at one reason tonight, uh, why some of the truths that we've already talked about are vitally important in our own Christian walk, in our church, in our families. And uh, so we're, that's what we're going to look at tonight, and in some ways it might be a little bit of review, uh, but it, it's going to put the why with the what that we've learned so far, if you will. So that's what we're looking at here. For sake of review, um, we're going through here, this is the Old Testament timeline of the nation of Israel, right? So we are in that blue section there, the time of the king's monarchy. Uh, we started with King Saul, or that's with the time frame where it started in. Then we had King David, and obviously where first kings picked up, King David was towards the end of his life. And uh, that's the time frame that we're in, but I want to add one more picture because this, this next picture is going to be important as we go through first kings because we're, we're about to learn about many different men and many different kings the nation of Israel and Judah, the split kingdom, as we go through. So here is another timeline of the nation of Israel during the time of the kings. Um, and so you're going to see eventually that split kingdom happen, but again, we're in that blue there underneath Solomon now. He is king of Israel here in 1 Kings chapter 2. So what are some things that we have looked at? Chapter 1 opened up with King David on his deathbed. And his son, Adonijah, promoting himself to be the next king of Israel. Men like Joab and Abiathar jumped on board. And we saw um, in week one that pride always destroys the work of God being pushed forward. And as we progressed, we saw Nathan, the loyalist. Uh, and we saw, as he saw what was happening with uh, Adonijah, Joab, and Abiathar, and all these people coming up against God's clear will of Solomon being the next king. He stayed loyal, not just to David, but we saw throughout Nathan's entire life, his loyalty was placed in God. His loyalty was placed in the word, words of God that God would reveal to him. And so we looked in week two about how our loyalty as well must be in God and to the word of God as we progress in our Christian life. And uh, so the end of chapter one, Solomon is anointed king and Adonijah runs to the tabernacle and grabs hold of the horns there on the altar in the tabernacle, claiming sanctuary and pleading for his life. And Solomon gave Adonijah one condition for Adonijah to keep his life, and that was to behave himself a worthy man, an honorable man to God and respectful to the throne. And we saw in week three that Adonijah should have had the prudence to foresee the end result of his choices. And we looked at how prudence is very key in our lives as well, to behave ourselves wisely, to know the possible effects and outcomes of decisions right now. And Adonijah did not have that. He had already seen his brother Absalom do the exact same thing and how it worked out for him. There should have been some prudence there to um, warn Adonijah of the end result of his actions that he, that he was taking here. 
We saw that each one of us must develop that wise spirit of prudence. And we continued. David dies in chapter 2. or We see that David speaks to Solomon in chapter 2 um, and gives him some last um, advice before David dies. Some very spiritual advice, some very specific advice. And also David was a great spiritual example with how he lived his life as well. And we looked at in our lives how we need to be a part of training the next generation, whether that is you being the next generation and receiving that instruction or implanting truth into the next generation's lives by spiritual truth, by specific truths for specific situations, and by our own life and our own example as well. And we looked at that in 1 Kings chapter 2, and then King David dies in chapter 2. And this is where we were last time we met. Um, Adonijah still did not learn his lesson. And Adonijah comes in in chapter 2, and he asks for David's maiden, Abishag. And we looked at all the meaning behind that act. There was something that that went deeper than him just wanting a beautiful maiden. And Solomon caught caught on to it as soon as Bathsheba said something. And he said, ask for him, Abishag, does he ask for the kingdom also? And we looked at the tradition back in that day, and it was, even Absalom did this as well when he took hold of the uh, harem of David, and taking the previous king's concubines or wives was an act of promoting yourself in that type of position again. And so Solomon sensed that as being the start of another scheme, and we see that Adonijah broke that one condition that Solomon had gave him to behave himself a worthy man to God and to the throne. And because of that, Solomon sends Benaiah, the captain of the bodyguard, and and, and Benaiah goes and kills Adonijah. And that's where we pick up uh, this evening. So here are the previous truths that we've looked at up to this point. So this evening, as we start here, Adonijah is dead. There is no longer a transition in Israel. We, We were talking for several weeks about this transition going on between kings. There's not a transition anymore. Solomon is king of Israel. He is on the throne. And that's what's taking place in Israel. Solomon is king. However, there are still people who could not jump on board with God's plan and will here. Whether it was because Solomon was too young or not a man of war or who knows. But tonight we are going to look at a man who was a problem to the throne. And Solomon had to deal with it. And we've actually already seen this man in our narrative up to this point some multiple times, and that's Abiathar. And we come to our passage here in 1 Kings chapter 2, and we're going to look at two verses tonight. And tonight I want us to each realize a specific reason why we must eliminate pride. Tonight we're going to see how it affects our judgments and how it affects our decisions. If I were to say one thing tonight before we start, it is this, be on alert. Watch out for this in your life. Because we're going to look at Abiathar here and we're going to look at his history and his life and it's, it's going to seem like he was doing things well. He was in alignment with God's will up to this point. Yet something happened and each one of us need to realize tonight we need to be on alert for those things that we've already talked about like pride. Like making sure that God's will is always more important than our plans and our desires and our will. And we're going to see a reason why in Abiathar's life here this evening. So look here with me in 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 26 
through 27. Verse 26. And unto Abiathar the priest said the king, Get thee to Anathoth unto thine own fields, for thou art worthy of death, but I will not at this time put thee to death, because thou bearest the ark of the Lord God before David my father, and because thou hast been afflicted in all wherein my father was afflicted. Verse 27, So Solomon thrust out Abiathar from being priest unto the Lord, that he might fulfill the word of the Lord which he spake concerning the house of Eli and Shiloh. Let's pray this evening. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for an opportunity to look into your word yet again this evening. Pray that we would glorify you, that you'd give me the words to say as we look at this truth here tonight, as we look at this um, narrative in 1 Kings, and just pray that you'd be glorified and keep our hearts humble and open to you as we look at this. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be on alert. I remember when I was in high school, my family lived out in the country, and uh, you don't get much action out in the country like you do in the city with sirens going back and forth, right? And so I remember this specific instance. My family, we were, we were out in the country. My dad was not home yet from work. And um, I believe at this point I probably was the, old, uh, the oldest child at home. My older two siblings uh, were off at college. And I remember two police cars pulling into our country driveway. I mean, that, is, that gets your attention when you're out in the country, and so we were, we were like, what is going on here? And the police officers, they get out of the car. I walk out with my mom, and we are asking what's going on. And they proceeded to tell us that these two men who were, uh, they were after for robbing a gas station not far were seen um, jumping out of a car into the woods out in the country, and which led to part of our property as well uh, in the back in our woods. And so obviously that gets your radars up when that is your property and the police are there searching for these men. And all, all sorts of things start going through your minds. And uh, my mom had all the nervousness about it. Me and my younger brother had all of the scheming plan. All right, how are we going to catch these guys? We're going to help the police out here, right? And so I remember that afternoon, we were watching the news to see maybe we could get hear back from the news before we actually heard back uh, from the police officers whether or not this situation was taken care of. And I remember uh, just constantly watching out the windows, looking at our backyard. I mean, it was acres away, but you could see the tree line. And at any moment, you would see those two men running from the tree line or whatever it might be. And I remember my, my younger brother and I doing that and being on alert. Everything that we did that day until we heard that these two men were in custody, it was, I mean, our guards were up. We were, my mom was not going to let us go play at the creek that day, right? And so being on alert means to have our guards. It means to be careful. It means to consciously be aware that um, we're making sure this isn't in our lives. This is what's happening to Abiathar here. And the first thing that I want to look at is Abiathar's history a little bit. And this is going to help in our narrative. It's going to help understand a little bit uh, where we are in this situation. So as we see the end result of Abiathar here, his punishment, it's important to understand both his history in similar situations and the office that he held as high priest. And so, what do we know about Abiathar up to this point? Where if you went back to 1 Samuel chapter 22, you would see him. And also in 2 Samuel chapter 15. The first thing that we see here is he, that he was the son of Ahimelech. The high priest um, who with other priests were slain by Saul at Nob. And we see that in 1 Samuel chapter 22. Uh, that was his, fa- his father was the high priest... 
and we see the slaughter uh, that Saul had there of the priest. And Abiathar uh, escapes this massacre of King Saul as you begin to read through verse 20 and verse 30, uh, bringing the ephod with him, and he actually joins with David. Right? This is during the time where David was to be the next king, and uh, that was not okay with Saul. And anything that was supportive of David was not okay with Saul either. And so Abiathar, escaping that massacre by King Saul, goes to King da- or the, the, the king-to-be, David. And he is there with him. Throughout that, he brings the ephod with him there in 1 Samuel chapter 22. We keep reading, and in 2 Samuel, we see Abiathar render David um, loyal service during Absalom's rebellion. That's interesting, is it not? Because these are very similar situations here. The sons of David trying to promote themselves to be king. And the time where Absalom did this, we read in 2 Samuel chapter 15, chapter 17, and chapter 19 of Abiathar being loyal to David. Uh, sticking with David, being loyal to God's clear will at that time. And, and during Absalom's rebellion, Abiathar remained loyal. So Abiathar stays faithful to God, God's will during Saul... And then, during um, Absalom's rebellion, it kind of makes you ask the question, what happened in this instance? What happens here that he would join alliances with Adonijah? You you have to ask yourself the question, maybe the first time um, he knew it was very clear to the children of Israel that David was to be the next king of Israel. And it was so clear logically for everyone because David had um, killed thousands and thousands, right? He had gained popularity and many people, the logical response was David's going to be the next king. And so maybe it was just what everyone was doing. And then we get to um, Absalom and perhaps it was just very clear of the rebellion of Absalom. I mean, David is still leading the kingdom. Um, he is still king. And uh, maybe it was just very clear that Absalom is clearly rebelling here. Uh, And so he stuck with King David yet again. So what happens here? What happens here when we have a transition? King David, uh, even before King David's death, he's on his deathbed. And Adonijah starts to promote himself to be king. And Abiathar, for the first time in his history so far, decides to jump on board with what was not in alignment with God's plan the nation of Israel. And so we see here that he joins Adonijah's push to power. Remember, Solomon was not the oldest living son of David at this time. Adonijah is in his 30s and he's a man of war. He's decorated. And Solomon is believed to be 19 to 20 years old and not a man of war. And in Abiathar's mind, for whatever reasons, no matter how clear God's will had already been that Solomon was to be the next king, he joined a more logical pick to be the next king of Israel. And that's what he's doing here. And this would bring us to our passage today with Abiathar, but it's also important to see something different about this instance in 1 Kings, and that is the office that he held. So as we read about this, we see, we look here, and Abiathar is, um, you could say, co-high priest here. He is sharing the position of high priest with Zadok. As our narrative progresses, we see yet again this man, Abiathar. And now we know several things about Abiathar already. He was a priest and he jumped on board with Adonijah's original scheme. And even was suspected by Solomon, remember, when Adonijah's second scheme came into play, that he was again involved when when Solomon responds to Bathsheba. But let's take even a closer look at this man 
And to do that, we need to get a fuller understanding of the office of a priest, of a high priest in the Old Testament. So a couple of things we have to understand here. The office of priest in the Old Testament started with Aaron in Exodus chapter 28. Uh, up to that point, the uh, sacrifices done unto God and the, the um, different practices of worship were really held by the head of the household up to this point. And then God establishes this office in Exodus chapter 28 and verse 1. It says this, And take thou unto thee Aaron thy brother and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, and he may minister unto me in the priest's office, even Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, Aaron's sons. And the rest of the chapter goes on to give specific apparels for the priest. Chapter 29 continues a little bit of the role. And then you see in Leviticus chapter 8 and all through Leviticus a lot of these important roles of the priest. But boiled down to it, it was this. A priest was an official who was set apart from the rest of the community in order to carry out certain duties that were associated with two things, worship and sacrifice. That was the office of a priest. In Joel chapter 1 and verse 9 and in chapter 2 verse 17, they are called ministers of the Lord. To this point, Abiathar has been co-high priest with a man named Zadok, and we know that because they shared the office of high priest in 1 Chronicles chapter 15 and verse 11. And um, in the rebellion of Absalom, they are mentioned several times, specifically in 2 Samuel chapter 15 verse 24. And it may be that Zadok became Saul's high priest after he killed uh, Abimelech and uh, all of the the men, uh, all the priests. And so Zadok became the high priest under Saul, but then Abiathar had been with David. And so when David became king, now they were sharing that position of high priest. Whatever the reason is, we see very clearly that they were sharing that responsibility in that position. But as we continue here, one of the priest's main responsibilities was to oversee the sacrifices that were made to God. In Joel chapter 1 and verse 13, it calls them the ministers of the altar. So this is one of the, the important roles that they have. Now as, as time went on, these priests were thought by the community to have this role because they were holy men of God. And that is true, but specifically because God gave them this role back in the Old Testament. But eventually, as time goes on in the Old Testament, they are thought to be the holy men of God. They are the ones that are allowed to perform these sacrifices. And they went through several things that we would call ritual purity as you look through the Old Testament that they would have to do to be able to handle these sacrifices, to be able to do different things in the tabernacle. And uh, the priests had to maintain these ritual things that were purity. And that is that is, they would go through steps to make sure they were clean before making a sacrifice. And we really read all about that in Leviticus chapter 21 uh, in the first several verses of that chapter. So we know that one of their responsibilities has to do with these sacrifices that were made. This is Abiathar here. Another one was this, though. The high priest was an office that also had the responsibility of receiving God's revelation, both from the studying of the law and the scriptures that they had, and their office of holding the Urim and the Thummim. And as we look at that, there's, there's a lot of discussion on this. The high priest was an office that, that had the responsibility of receiving this revelation. And you could say it was part of a divine consultation in the Old Testament. All throughout the book of 1 Kings, we're going to see kings go to the high priest to try of what God's will was to either go to battle or not go to battle or these different things. And so um, two ways that really in the Old Testament 
the high priest would um, discern the, the will of God, the plan of God. The first one was the Urim and the Thummim. And these are highly debated as to how exactly they were used in the Old Testament. And uh, we, we do know several things about these uh, instruments, you could call them, to, to finding God's revelation with the high priests here. They were part of the attire for the high priest. They were placed in the breastplate. We see that in Exodus chapter 28 and in Leviticus chapter 8. And uh, the, the revelation they received from God through them gave specific direction for an immediate problem or crisis. It wasn't just a yes or no answer. So what we know about these things are it was part of the priestly attire and they were used in some way to understand specifically um, a, respond, a, a revelation from God um, for specific problems, for specific crisis uh, times. And we know that all throughout, as we see these mentions, that what these things mentions, those were their purposes. In Numbers chapter 27, verse 21, Moses had received communication directly from God. But Joshua, uh, it said in that passage, would receive it from the high priest Eleazar with the means of the Urim and Thummim. And uh, Deuteronomy 33.8 says they, uh, that they are mentioned by Moses in his address to the tribe of Levi, giving the instructions to have the high priest to be a carrier of them. 1 Samuel 28.6 gives us three main, or three main ways God revealed himself during this time um, without a complete canon, and those were dreams the Urim, and prophets. But instead of seeking men of God, King Saul sought after a medium in, uh, in uh, Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 31, or a spiritualist, you might say, in this passage. And uh, in verses 20, or chapter 20 and verse 6, we see that God said to separate from those types of people. And so in 1 Samuel 28 verse 6, there is a rebuke there. Uh, for Saul doing the wrong thing and not taking advantage of how God had um, ordained this to work. Dreams, prophets, and a high priest carrying these items. So the common beliefs about the actual practice of using them have no real proof to them. Uh, but the actual practice really doesn't take away from the use. We do know the use uh, of the, or the purpose for them. So, the, so some say that they were two stones in a pouch... Uh, and whatever stone the priest drew would indicate God's will. Um, others say that they were, they were jewels that shone in a special way to indicate the leading of the Lord. But it's really, really useless to speculate this evening because we aren't given those details in the Old Testament. We simply know the high priest, as Abiathar was here, would use them to get revelation from God. And then the second thing that was used in this divine consultation was that the priest, especially the high priest needed to be well learned in the law and the scriptures that they had and teaching that law as well. As, and that's another part of this divine consultation. We know that eventually the scribes really took headway in this task eventually, but during this time it was the priest. And we see this talked about in Deuteronomy chapter 33 and verse 10 and in Jeremiah 18 and eight, uh, verse 18. Leviticus 10, 11, again going back to the book of Leviticus understanding a lot of these roles of the office of priests and high priests says this, and that ye may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken unto them by the hand of Moses. So as was custom, priests would spend years of their lives studying the law of God and studying them in a way because they had the responsibility of teaching them 
to the people of Israel. They needed to know the scriptures well. They needed to understand the laws. And by the time someone would become the high priest, you could imagine how much time they had spent trying to understand the laws and the scripture that they had had up to this point. So the divine consultation, simply put, was Abiathar's job to receive God's words and wills and communicate them to the people. And even the kings, as we'll see, will come to them and ask them um, to get answers from the Lord. Other duties of the, the priest or high priest would, uh, are all throughout Scripture, pronouncing blessings. We see that in Numbers chapter 6, overseeing matters of ritual purification. We kind of talked about that a little bit in Leviticus and in Numbers. Collecting tithes, special roles during ceremonies. And so as you see different narratives in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, it shows, sheds some more light on different things that the priests would have the responsibility of doing. But let me just be very clear this evening what we are actually saying here. A man holding the office of high priest who had a main job of searching out and communicating God's words, wills, and plans misses it completely here. Misses God's plan completely here. This is sobering. It it didn't matter how many years he studied the law. That he held in his possession the actual Urim and Thummim. He completely misses this one. Why is that? Listen, when, even when we have all of the academic uh, achievements in God's word, or even when we are pastors, or when we've been in ministry, or we've been saved for years, or we've been in church service after church service for years, and we've studied God's word and studied God's word and studied God's word, it doesn't matter where you are at spiritually tonight, we all need to be on alert when it comes to focusing on our own wills or wants or on God's. It doesn't matter here in Abiathar's life, all of these things that he had access to. And yet he completely misses it here. How sad is it here that Abiathar, the high priest, misses God's plan? But how sad is it as well when a pastor or when someone who has a lot of Bible knowledge or when someone who has been saved for years doesn't see and doesn't jump on board with God's clear plan and will? Because they didn't see the situation clearly through eyes of humility and a heart that says God's will over my will in everything. It's sobering. So let's see what happens to Abiathar here in our passage. We see his punishment given here. So what does Solomon choose to do with this man who has refused to see God's revealed plan and jump on board and serve the living God? We see several things here. Solomon sends Abiathar to the priestly city of Anathoth, about three miles from Jerusalem is where this was located. And in essence, what Solomon is doing is relieving Abiathar from his high priest position and placing him in, you could say, retirement. Uh, He was no longer going to hold that office. He was no longer going to be in Jerusalem. And this is a a different response than Adonijah than Adonijah had, obviously, Adonijah was put to death, and we're going to see uh, in weeks to come, as we look at the end of Joab, it's a different response than Solomon has to Joab. Both of those men were put to death for the rebellion against the throne, but Abiathar here has a different consequence for his action. Whatever the reason, out of respect for all he had done in the past, is what chapter 20, or verse 26 is talking about, whether Solomon just sensed he missed this one or, or he does not kill Abiathar just because of how he, how he acted under his father David. He shows respect in this way. And Abiathar had faithfully served Solomon's father David. 
And Solomon chooses wisely not to hastily kill anyone who was against him just because they were against him. Now, this is very wise on his part. We saw uh, the last time we, we looked at it that Adonijah had everything he needed so, to not undergo the punishment of death. And yet he broke that one condition that we saw. And we saw a couple weeks ago that King David advised Solomon to put Joab to death for some murders that he had previously committed, which we're going to look in, uh, at when we look at Joab's end. But here, Abiathar is pretty much just banished. That's his punishment here. There's actually more to this act than, than meets the eye. And we see that in verse uh, 26 and 27. This is actually a fulfillment of prophecy. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 27 through 36, we see the prophecy, a prophecy to Eli that his family would not continue in the priesthood. So in 1 Samuel chapter 2, we see that the roles of a priest are reiterated and the sanctity and the purity of their office and their job in the tabernacle were completely defiled by Eli's sons, uh, Hophni and Phinehas. And in 1 Samuel chapter 2, it calls them sons of Belial or wicked men. They did not know the Lord, it says in verse 12. And yet they were given these priestly duties and uh, taking advantage of them. In Deuteronomy 18.3, we see that since the priests had the office of performing sacrifices, it was allowed for the priests to take a specific amount of meat that was offered to eat for themselves. Uh, however, Hophni and Phinehas would take as much of the portion as they wanted from the sacrifice and in Leviticus chapter 7, verse 31, it was required that the fat of the meat was to be burned at the altar. But Hophni and Phinehas took, the, took it raw, including the fat, and, uh, from, from the worshipers. And they were taking advantage of their leadership position. And you continue to read there, verse 17 says that the, the sins of these young men were great before the Lord. But in verse 22, Eli is faced with a decision. It was also told him that his sons were having sexual affairs with the women who served at the tabernacle. And Eli addresses his sons and says that God would judge them for their deeds. It would catch up to them. But this talk did not do any good because they went right back to it. And because of some lack of parenting in a godly way, his sons disregard every word that he said to them. And Eli had lost his influence. It was very sad. God tells Eli that his descendants would be removed from the line of priests... Solomon's act of relieving Abiathar from his duties was the last of the line and the fulfillment of that prophecy back in, uh, in, in Eli's case. Aren't you glad we know this about our God? Is he, if he says something, he will do it. We're looking at a prophecy here that came to pass. God said it was going to happen. It's going to happen. But as believers, we have several of those as well that have not yet been fulfilled, like him coming again. And aren't you glad that we can believe that with 100% certainty? Because when God says he will do something, he will do it. It will come to pass. That has always been true about our God and will continue to be true about him. And then Zadok becomes the sole high, becomes the sole high priest under King Solomon. Even in the midst of people doing their own thing, God is still in control here. God was ultimately in control of this situation and nothing Abiathar did would get in the way of what God had purposed and planned. And when it comes to God's plan, it will be accomplished. The question is, who are his willing servants that he will choose to use for his plan? His servants that say, your will over my will, like we looked at last time. So taking a closer look at Abiathar here this evening, the high priest makes me ask this, why? 
Or how did this happen in his life? Doesn't it make you ask the same thing as we look at the role of a high priest and everything they were to do? How could someone who jumped on board with God's will when it came to Saul and David do this? How could someone in the exact same situation with Absalom jump on board with God's will and then completely miss this one? How did it happen? How could someone whose life was revolved around searching out God's will and communicating it through studying the law and these this Urim and Thummim miss God's clear revealed plan about Solomon being the next king. Well, tonight our timeless truth is this. We must die to self when searching out God's will. And we looked at last uh, a couple weeks ago, when should we search out God's will? All the time. And so in essence, what our timeless truth is here tonight, we must die to self. And as you and I look to discern God's plan and will for our lives, for the, the plan and will, God's, plan, God's man for our church, God's plan for your family, God's plan for your future, young person, we have to realize we have to die to self. And there's a reason that's so important, and it's this. When we are focused on self and our own will and our own plan and our own agenda and our own likes and our own preferences and not solely focused on searching out God and His plans and His commands... We cannot see, we cannot interpret, we cannot judge a situation clearly because of where our focus is at. Today our timeless truth is something we all must understand and be on alert because of, for the sake of our spiritual lives, our families, our future, and the church during a time of transition. Get this tonight. A lack of humility and a focus on self, instead of focusing solely on God, results in us Seeing and interpreting people and situations through a biased and unclear lens. Which ultimately leads us to decisions that are not God's will. That are not God's plan. But our own. We disguise them very well though. We, we pull all of our likes and our preferences and our plans. And we see other people, ourselves and our focus on ourselves. Well, that was against me and now I'm going to judge this person and according to this or whatever it was, or we look at a situation of transition and we have a huge decision to make, but when we're focusing on it through a lens that our focus and our lives are on ourself, it leads to a blurred vision of the situation and ultimately leads to you and I making a decision that is not God's will. That is our own plan. That is our own wants for the situation. That's what it leads to here. That's why the danger is here. Think of it this way, and we'll wrap up here uh, with a few short thoughts. Say that you are placed on a jury, and uh, you, are, uh, you come into being placed on that jury with a bias. And that bias is this. Anyone with facial hair is always guilty. And I don't know what's the reason for that bias, but let's just say that was your bias, and it does not matter any evidence or anything that comes out in that, in that trial, whatever it might be. It doesn't matter, because as soon as that person walks in the courtroom and they have facial hair, they are guilty, because that's your bias. And in the same way, when it comes to situations in our lives, in the church, in our families, in our Christian life, you know what our bias is when we're living for self? What I want... What benefits me, what is comfortable for me, that is what's right. That's what this decision is that I should make. That's the biasness that we have when we're so focused on ourselves. 
In week one, we talked about pride destroying the work of God, and there is this is one of the reasons that it does. When your life, believer, revolves around you, every situation, every major decision, every person you form an opinion about are all formed with a simple bias. It's all about me. My wants. My desires. This goes right along with studying loyalty, as we already did, or studying God's will above our will. Tonight's timeless truth is more of a why than it is a what. There are several reasons to stay loyal, to eliminate pride, to push God's will and plan over mine, and to have prudence. But one of those reasons is what living for self causes here. It causes a blurred vision, and it causes a wrong response. We have example after example of this in Scripture. So as we look and close, we're going to look at some passages in Scripture that are helpful for this. But just some examples, if you go to Numbers chapter 11, you would see the children of Israel. And they have been benefiting from this miracle day after day of God providing manna for them. Yet they start to complain in Numbers chapter 11. And they make a statement that is completely absurd. They start to complain about this manna that they were getting day after day. And they say, boy, remember when we were in Egypt? At least we had fish. At least we had onions. At least we had melons. At least we had a variety here. And they start to make assumptions and statements that say it was better when we were slaves in Egypt. How absurd. You're, you're looking at the children of Israel like you don't even have to work for your food. You wake up and it's there. You grab it and you eat it. And you're going to say that it was better when you were in Egypt being persecuted and beaten and even killed if you weren't working correctly. Yet there's a blurred vision there because eventually the children of Israel take their focus off of the God that was providing them that manna. And now it's all about themselves. Manna's old to us now. I want something else. I want something new. This isn't satisfying me. In uh, Matthew chapter 16, we see it with Peter. Christ has just blessed Peter. He has given him a blessing. He has asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And some, they answer and they're like, well, some say that you're a prophet uh, and such and such, and Christ asks again, but, but who do you say I am? And Peter steps up and says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Christ blesses him for saying it. He says, well, do you say that? That is an awesome response there, Peter. But then the chapter goes on, and Christ starts to talk about how he was going to die for the sins of mankind. And Peter steps up again and says, not so. That's, you're not going to die. That's not going to happen. Not on my watch. And Christ goes, get thee behind me, Satan. Right after he had just given him a blessing because this was a, he did not understand that God's plan at this moment. I've often wondered about that incident. Because you think of Peter later on preaching at Pentecost and preaching the gospel that this Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose again. I have to think that he had to remember the time where he tried to stop Christ from doing that. I mean, it had to come back to us, but he didn't see it clearly. He didn't see it correctly in his decision to speak obviously wasn't God's plan. We can talk all night long about illustrations like Lot, like Haman, like Judas, uh, like Joab, like Abiathar here, like Adonijah, who when we're focused on ourselves, our vision of situations and people are very blurred, and as a result, the decisions that we make are not in line with God's will. We're pushing our own agenda again. We're pushing our own wants and our own desires. It doesn't matter this evening how long you've been a Christian, or how many times in the past you have been obedient to God's plan, or how knowledgeable you are and how many degrees you have, each one of us can fall into this trap. 
of focusing our lives on ourselves. Why is that dangerous? Well, we saw that tonight, and it leads, we saw that in, in several weeks, it leads to destruction, but part of the reason is that destruction is because we see people and circumstances and misread and misjudge them according to God's plan. So how do we do eliminate this type of focus? That's really what we want to learn tonight, right? How do we, we stop from doing that? Well, just some clear things tonight are this. We must die to self. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 24. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. Let me ask you tonight, are you at the point in your life where you die to your own desires and your own wants on a daily basis? And daily come to Christ and say, today is about your wants and your plans for my life. You and I must come to that point. And it's a personal decision on each one of our parts. When life is about yourself, when interpreting people is all about how they stand in your eyes, when finding a church or staying at a church is influenced by what you want and desire, and more so than what God does, disaster starts to happen. Churches start to play. People become bitter at other people, and families begin to do things far from the plan and will of God. We are nothing without Christ. And for some of you, it's just a reminder, and for some of us, it's just a reminder to daily die to self, but perhaps there's others here this evening, maybe this is a decision that you've never once made. Maybe you need to personally make a decision that your life is not about yourself. It's about God. We've been bought with a price. We must be more in love with God than we are ourselves. 1 John 4.19 says we love him because he first loved us. Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Part of dying for self is realizing who we are in comparison to God. You know what makes life much easier to be focused on God rather than focusing on self? is falling in love with who God is. Christian, tonight, if you took time to search out your God in this book and how he has shown himself in the lives of your life and those around you, I guarantee you, you will find things to fall in love with. You will find things to motivate your life. His grace, his love, his holiness, his purity, the things you begin to discover about him will be your focus, and not just your focus, but your desire. We must make effort to focus on God. It's, it takes no effort at all for us to focus on ourselves. That's our sin nature. We all wake up on a daily basis and have some part of us that says, well, i got to do what's right for me today. So we have to take effort in this. I love the passage there in Colossians chapter 2, verses 6-7, through seven, and some of the words that are used here. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up, in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. It takes effort. You don't get established, you don't get built up, you don't get rooted by not taking an effort to learn about your God on a daily basis, to talk to him, to look into his word. You and I need to daily learn of our God, daily communicate him with him, and daily memorize his words. So what does what does it look like? Making time for God in your schedule. Listening to preaching when you have the chance, being in church, making sure you open his word and talk with him daily without making an effort to do those things. We're not just going to all of a sudden start desiring his plan and his will. And then finally, you and I must trust God more than we trust ourselves. 
That's a hard one. Psalm 28, 7, the heart of the psalmist comes out here. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart, or my, my heart trusteth in him. Giving everything over to God is a huge decision. Teenager, giving your life over to God and your future with what you're going to do uh, with in your life and giving that completely over to God, that's a big decision. Finding a new pastor for a church, finding God's man for a church, that's a big decision. Making decisions for our family and standards for our family and our own lives, those are big decisions. You and I have to trust God for that more than we do ourselves. And as we've stated before, trust is only built with a relationship. The natural response of you and I is not going to be to trust someone we know nothing about. Not going to be to trust someone who we haven't already been relying on and knowing and loving. Realize this, we cannot trust the judgment calls or decisions of a person who is living for themselves, whether that's us or another person. Why? Because those decisions and judgments and interpretations have been based from a view of life that in those moments have decided to care more about self than about God. So as we conclude, can I ask you this tonight? Would you see the importance of focusing on God? That's really what we're talking about. See the importance of that. And would you see the dangers in making decisions for your life, for your future teenager, for your family parent, for your church brothers and sisters, and forming opinions about others or something or a situation when we are living and focusing on our own wants and preferences, we need to realize the dangers of that. There is a clear and obvious danger in living in a prideful way, and many of those dangers come from decision-making when we have interpreted it completely wrong because our focus is on ourselves. We're good at disguising it. We may even say, it, I believe it is God's will. I'm making this decision because it's what God and the Holy Spirit are leading me to do. But we have to be very honest with ourselves. Is there any part of us that is focusing on that with our own wants and desires and our own plan and our own agenda? Perhaps this is just one of the dangers of living for self that cause Proverbs to say, Seest thou a man wise in his own conceit? There's more hope of a fool than of him. Because a life that's lived focused on self day after day, that's affecting decision after decision after decision, is destructive, and it's definitely not in line with God's will. So as we see this, when you, when you and I live our life for self, each decision is affected by that, and our vision starts to be blurred. Pride affects how we view and interpret things, and as a result, leads us to act unwisely. So as we have a transition here at the church, again, let me just reiterate, as we search for God's will, and I hope you are searching, I hope you are praying, I hope you are evaluating our, yourself, we need to die to self. We need to be humble. We need to put God's will above our own will. When it comes to making standards in your family, parents, it needs to be God's will above your own will. You need to die to self. When it comes to what you're going to do with your future, teenager, die to self. God's will is much better than our will. And like we looked at a couple weeks ago, Die to self when we're trying to discern God's will, well, we should always be trying to discern God's will. That should be our focus, his will above my wants, my desires, and my plans. So would you commit with me tonight to staying humble, to be focused on our God, and to die to self? Because even the best of us, like Abiathar here, can completely miss it when we're focused on ourselves. Let's pray. Jimmy Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for 
the truths that we're learning about. And God, we just pray that as we continue to face things in our own lives individually, in our church, that we would be solely focused on you, that we would be humble and eliminating any amount of pride and focusing on our own wants or desires so that we can clearly see your will done and, and done through our lives and in our lives and in our church. And we just pray that each one of us would remain humble. Thank you for giving us warnings, things to be on alert about for reasons why we should avoid pride, for reasons why we should place your will above our own. And we thank you for that. Pray that we would apply it tonight. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Stand together. James says it this way. Knowing this, the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have a perfect work that you may be perfect.